The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974, Part 10. You're going to ruin everything. On the 26th of May 1974, six hours after the Prime Minister Harold Wilson's broadcast, the British Army launched an operation which very nearly led to the violent Protestant backlash that policy planners had anticipated for a long time. The plan was formulated under heavy security by Lieutenant Colonel Donald Brewster. At four in the morning that Sunday, just before dawn, British soldiers of the 42nd Marine Commandos and the 1st Battalion Light Infantry carried out a series of arrests and raids on the Loyalist Ulster Protestant homes in North and West Belfast. According to the press, at the time over 500 soldiers were involved in the operation. Throughout the Shankill, Dunkern Gardens, Rathcool and Newton Abbey, 22 men, in the eyes of the army, the most important tactical commanders in both the UVF and UDA, were arrested in a move that struck at the policy or peaceful cohesion and coercion on the part of the UWC. In Newton Abbey, according to Fisk, the Marines walked into the local Loyalist Club in Ardeen Avenue, where drinks were still being served and began chatting with the men inside as if they were paying a social call, until an officer blew a whistle and the soldiers ordered the Ulster Protestants all to stand against the wall. This in turn led to a brief bout of hand-to-hand -hand fighting in which the Marines drew their batons on the Loyalists before leading a number of them away. Those arrested included the senior commander of the South East Antrim UDA and virtually the entire leadership of the Red Hand Commando. So swift and brutal was the operation that the Protestants in Rathcool were incensed. While a crowd of 1,500 descended on the Newton Abbey RUC station to protest at the brutality, led by Alec McGowan, a local councillor who had taken evidence from eyewitnesses of the army action, others in the paramilitaries, both UVF and UDA, gave orders to bring weapons into the Rathcool estate from their weapons dumps, intending to exact full revenge on the British Army. And why were the Army acting in Rathcool before daylight in the middle of the strike? As Merlin Rees in his memoirs tells us, later that morning he called one of his regular security meetings to be brought up to date by General Frank King on the situation. Quote, there had been a particularly nasty example of intimidation in Ballymena where Catholics had been murdered. Murders which were dismissed by the Loyalist paramilitaries, and by that he means the UWC, as mistakes resulting from disobedience. I was assured that every possible charge would be brought against the men responsible, who were being looked for in the Rathcool area and along the north shore of Belfast Lock. The murders had indeed enraged public opinion, Catholic and nationalist opinion, as well as Protestant opinion, and particularly the UWC, because the attitude of the murderers, as well as heinous, 
served absolutely no purpose and became the biggest threat to their generally non-violent insurrection. The UWC, without hesitation, completely disowned and condemned the murders. In what amounted to a calculated insult to the RUC command in north and west Belfast, who the army were growing to distrust, suspecting UWC and Oilist sympathies, they were told nothing. This was particularly pointed in action given that the Marines headquarters in North Queen Street Barracks were also the shared headquarters of the RUC's D Division. The commanders of those police and military units therefore had their opposites in the same building and one told the other nothing. Even special branch were told nothing and knew nothing of the operation until they witnessed the lifted commanders brought in. Bitter recriminations began among the snubbed RUC officers. Some of the special branch went to the lengths of ringing an Ulster television reporter to point out that there was no evidence at all against the men. Indeed, as Fisk says, such was the disharmony that at the same time that the Army Public Relations Officer was confidently telling the assembled press that the arrested were singing like birds, the RUC were refuting this by revealing that at that stage not one of the lifted men had even been interviewed. But the British Army had had enough of the North and West Belfast UDN UVF. On that same day, in Portadown, 10,000 joined a pro-UWC rally addressed by Unionist MP Harold McCusker, who stated that the size of the crowd gave proof to the lie that the Ulster workers were being coerced. And on this day, the Grand Orange Lodge finally gave their support to the UWC and telegraphed the Queen. As for the Northern Ireland office, there was a high-level government meeting that same day. General Frank King, Merlin Rees, Stan Orme, and Lord Donaldson, Rees's parliamentary under-secretary, were all present. The meeting heard with some satisfaction about the extent of the arrest of the UDN-UVF leaders that morning and its potential ramifications. They mostly spent their time discussing the impact of Wilson's ill-tempered speech and the effect that it had had in galvanising Ulster Protestant opinion. The expressions of outrage were already being reported in the BBC. Farmers, businessmen and even members of Faulkner's own party who had up till then opposed the strike in principle were now openly throwing their support behind the UWC. And it was reported the supporters of the strike in Hawthorndon Road and in East Belfast quote, had given material expression to their anger by ostentatiously pinning large pieces of bath sponge on their lapels as a badge of pride. And here I quote Rees. That speech revealed what they had long suspected and now saw revealed, the impatient contempt that the pro-Irish Republican Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland had for them. Fisk reports civil servants witnessing Rees arguing over the phone with Wilson about the military strategy to be adopted if the executive stayed in existence, but little else is said of this. Suddenly, while all this is going on, Jerry Fitt entered their meeting and expressed the sheer collective exasperation of the SDLP and then presented them with an ultimatum. The SDLP had come to the end of the road with them, Fit told them, holding back nothing. They had compromised and compromised and compromised, and yet had got nothing back. The rank and file had always been suspicious that they had gone too far. Then Jerry Fit gave his ultimatum. Either the British Army implement the oil plan by 11am Monday, or they would all resign. He also went on to explain that Paddy Devlin was refusing now to even come to Stormont, having to all intents and purposes renounced it and along with the community relations minister Ivan Cooper was already on his way down to Dublin to make his feelings known to their guarantors the government of the Irish Republic. Presented with their exasperated fate accompli 
Merlin Rees contacted the Prime Minister Harold Wilson immediately and agreed that they should have an urgent meeting and that it was imperative to discuss the deployment of the British Army to, as Fisk reports, break the strike. Not to implement the oil plan, but to break the strike. Rees, accompanied by General Frank King at Rees's request, was ferried to Coldrow's naval station in Cornwall to be joined by Harold Wilson, who had been holidaying on the Scilly Isles. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland was forced to interrupt his holiday once more to deal with the crisis. Dublin, as ever, was kept informed. The SDLP were at pains to keep their ultimatum secret, fearing that if the news of it got out, Protestants would view the British Army descending into a confrontation through pressures from Catholic politicians very dimly. At the same time, Faulkner too was chairing a meeting of his pro-Sunningdale Unionist Assembly members. They were despondent in the aftermath of Wilson's speech. With support draining away, the only way to win now, they decided, was to negotiate by bringing in an impartial chairman, such as the Conservative government had done by appointing Lord Wilberforce to head an inquiry to defuse the 1972 miners' strike in Great Britain. Faulkner would later suggest Sir Fred Catherwood or Lord Grey, the former Governor of Northern Ireland. And so, yet again, Rees went back to see his Prime Minister. And as he did, he began to realise that a multitude of Protestant eyes, all now in support of UWC, were watching his every move and reporting back. You see, Rees had taken every precaution to keep this trip secret, lest it look like weaknesses in the, in the face of the Ulster Workers' Council. Distrusting the special telephone security link, as in his own words, not allowing for special discussion, by that he means UWC supporters in his own office were listening in. He had asked Frank King to accompany him as a ruse, with King in the helicopter to accompany him as far as Aldergrove, Rees hoped it would look to the Civil Service Secretariat in Stormont as if he was going to Lisburn Army Headquarters for a meeting on security. He took every precaution that this meeting was not to be publicised. What he is not telling us in his memoirs was his real fear, that this hastily improvised meeting would look like panic. When his helicopter came down, on the landing ground in Coldrose, he discovered to his absolute incredulity that the news of his trip was already being reported in the BBC. He asked in his memoirs, was the leak from prying eyes at the Stormont Castle or from Aldergrove Airport or was it from other sources? The honest answer is probably all three, given the support the UWC was now enjoying. It could have been from the civil servants, cleaners, chauffeurs or any other working Ulster Protestant who witnessed his movements. It was a strange, short evolution in events from UDA barricades 12 days before to airport workers, managers and trolley dollies and baggage handlers reporting the progress of opponents to the UWC. And then he insists somewhat disingenuously that there was no air of crisis when I briefed Harold on the development since our Friday meeting and particularly the intention of the UWC with regard to oil and power. I showed Harold General Frank King's letter and he accepted its good sense. He pointed out, however, that its conclusions were based on the assumption that the existing system of government would continue. This he considered unrealistic and agreed with me that the executive would break. We should be considering a return to direct rule. Rees is giving a very interesting take because if this account is true on the shift in Harold Wilson's thinking, then what they had called a small, unrepresentative gang of thugs and neo-fascist bullies not 36 hours ago now looked like they were going to win. A slight caveat on this. Merlin's Reese's attempts at self-justification, however, sometimes move into the bizarre. And yet, the world Reese left behind him for a short while 
was a world where the Ulster Workers Council's every new communique, instruction and advice dominated the BBC and the regular 10-minute bulletins, which everybody in the Northern Ireland of 1974 listened into, regular reminders of just who was completely dominating and controlling the country. And then there were the hourly bulletins and five magazine programmes a day, fielded by a small, scrupulously impartial but overwhelmed BBC staff. The BBC reporters not having time for in-depth analysis of the constitutional implications of the strike, instead concentrated on the real problems that their listeners were facing daily. The situation with the roadblocks, where they were for people on the move, and the availability of transport and food. And being mostly born and brought up in Northern Ireland, this was their whole world, and they injected a certain sensationalism into the reports, born out of either lack of experience, being freelance, and many not yet having graduated to the national staff of the BBC, but cheerfully helping out in the crisis. John Johnson, agricultural correspondent, and others, all entirely sincere and earnest reporters, outdid themselves in competing apocalyptic hyperbole, along with Hugo Patterson, a cricket commentator, a thoroughly lovable rotund figure as Fisk describes him, employed during the strike by the Northern Ireland Electricity Service, and whose increasingly deadpan assurances of the inevitable and soon irretrievable destruction of the energy supply, actually in the end brought humour to even the strikers, and led to his being fondly remembered as Mr Doomsday. That Sunday evening, Harry West, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, gave the Ulster Workers' Council's response to the speeches of Wilson and Faulkner. This seems odd that a group in rebellion were allowed to give a response on the BBC. In Great Britain, this could never have been the case ever since the 1926 general strike and the lessons learnt. But this was Northern Ireland. And the BBC attempting to balance their coverage regarded the UWC as, quote-unquote, the natural opposition. Indeed, so scrupulous were the BBC in attempting to be impartial and being aware that Faulkner's speech had not been seen in some parts of the province due to power cuts, the BBC asked the Electricity Service to implement exactly the same power cuts to ensure equal coverage. Incredible. Imagine that happening today. No political heavyweight, Harry West was viewed by the UWC leadership as the farmer's MP and he had not written the speech himself. He had been allocated 10 minutes of air time and sat in the Europa Hotel and as he drank his coffee with powdered milk, there had been no fresh milk for a while now, he underlined half the sentences lest he fail to give the content the correct emphasis. As Don Anderson goes on to say, his speech tapped into the opportunity that Wilson's speech had afforded. It allowed the Loyalists, that is Ulster Protestants supporting the UWC, to cast themselves in the eyes of Protestants in the role of protectors of Ulster's good name while associating Faulkner, Fitt and the rest as its detractors. His speech addressed two of Wilson's assertions in that ill-tempered speech and they addressed them head on. Firstly, that Sunningdale was not at all an exercise by any means in democracy. And secondly, he refuted on behalf of the UWC the implication that the UWC and, by now, the majority of Ulster Protestants, of being spongers. He and his fellow MPs were very aware that up until Northern Ireland's present difficulties erupted, Northern Ireland had been a net contributor to the British Treasury. So much for friends. We meet the very same taxation demands as every other citizen of the United Kingdom, said Harry West. We are well aware that the exchequer expenditure exceeds the taxation revenue raised here, as indeed it does in Scotland and other parts of the United Kingdom. Were they too, he asked, with unimpeachable logic, spongers? 
But that night, the UWC leaders were far too anxious to be elated by the fact that they were still at liberty. The arrests of the senior loyalists and paramilitaries across North Belfast and their reaction to it risked coping everything the UWC had achieved in the last 12 days and Fisk relates what happened in his account. The UVF and UDA local leaders in the Rathcool estate were incandescent with rage about the arrests. Hands that had fired guns nightly before the strike were ready to fire more. As Fisk relates, all day Andy Terry, the head of the UDA and Little, had been trying to assuage the tempers of the private armies in Rathcool, who wanted to take the traditional and violent revenge on the British Army for the early morning arrests. A telephone call indicating that the UVF were going up the coast, which was a code for accessing weapons from their weapons dumps, led to a panic. Andy Terry and Tommy Little decided that the only way to stop the Loyalist paramilitaries starting a shooting match was to go and speak to them in Clockfern Orange Hall. Craig felt it important to go with them and ended up involved in the crossfire of the shouting match. The Rathcool men were demanding an all-out war with the British Army. The UDA commanders were shouting at them not to. The UVF and their customary leather jackets had, according to Fisk, distributed large numbers of submachine guns around the estate, whereas the UDA men, dressed in their traditional army parkas, were armed with rifles brought over on the Clyde Valley ship 50 years before. Bolt-action Gewehr rifles from 1889 with the red hand of Ulster stomped on their stocks. The argument with UDA leadership and the UVF and UDA rank and file went on for some time until Tommy Little and Andy Terry were exasperated. Their nose knocked too badly out of joint by the humiliation they had suffered at the hands of the British soldiers. The local leadership were determined on cold revenge. At last, Fisk says, The local paramilitary suggested that the UWC were too cowardly to fight for their own cause and Craig tried to explain how such rash judgments could overthrow the principle of non-violent protest. Then, perspiring and almost shouting in his anxiety, Bill Craig burst out, You are ruining everything! Terry joined in and to his immense relief, the two leading officers of Rathcool UDA agreed. They would hold their fire for three more days if the UWC would demand the release of the arrested men. Their anger was unabated, but the crisis had been averted. Three days later, UVF officers at the end of the strike would threaten to shoot the entire UWC leadership when they failed to hold out for the release of the arrested leaders. But by then, the threats would be drowned out under the thunder of hundreds upon thousands of feet by then returning to work in a stampede. Meanwhile, back to the policy planners and government ministers, at 9pm that evening, Merlin Rees held a meeting with the security officials. For the British Army this time, it fell to Brigadier Len Garrett, Chief of Staff, to raise his objections to Rees. That it was pointless occupying the power stations if the army technicians couldn't work them, given that the workers would walk out en masse, and this made the second option to appease the SDLP, that is John Hume's oil plan, the only inevitable course. The army were to seize the terminal and petrol stations at 5am, according to the classified instruction of 39th Brigade. As Fisk states, the SDLP's ultimatum had achieved its effect. The British Army was to become involved in strike breaking. And the executive's hope was, once again, that the reaction would be violent, that the UWC support would split, that the UWC would lose its apparent mandate to speak for the majority of Ulster Protestantism, and that the workers, especially in the power plants, seeing the failure of the stoppage as the support drained away, would have no choice but to go back to work before it was too late. And lastly, as a side note, if you followed this far, you're probably wondering, what about the IRA? 
What were the provisional IRA doing while all this was going on? There is a myth in Protestant quarters that the provisional IRA were cowed by the UWC strike and the Protestants out on the street in Protestant-dominated areas made their clandestine movements impossible. The truth is that car bombs stopped and that the nightly crackle of gunfire in the Catholic areas did cease, but there were still the odd gun attacks and other actions. The bombing campaign was paused for two reasons. Firstly, David O'Connell, the Chief of Staff of the Provisional IRA, did clandestinely visit Belfast during this time, and his offer of talks carried through the now legalised IRA political wing Sinn Féin with the UWC was contemptuously refused. In the eyes of the UWC, they were responsible for the relentlessness of this chaos, carnage and the threat to the life of Northern Ireland. O'Connell had been impressed by Harry Murray on his own initiative, sending the first UWC-controlled petrol tanker into Catholic West Belfast. Indeed, the Provisional IRA Chief of Staff was also aware that whilst Protestant areas had enforced stoppages and closures, Catholic areas were left scrupulously alone, and accordingly, their buses still ran, and their stores and petrol stations remained open in Catholic Ballymurphy and Anderson's town in the west of Belfast. But for the life of the strike, the Provisional IRA had indeed gone silent. After an emotional meeting in Dublin, where one IRA commander had advocated a bombing campaign to coincide with the UWC stoppage, O'Connell, to quote Fisk, who was present at the meeting, saw no reason why the Provisionals should waste scarce materiel when the Loyalists, that is Ulster Protestants, might achieve what the IRA had been attempting for four years, the destruction of British policies in the northeast of Ireland and the consequent reluctance of London to go on supporting their Irish province. Instead, he directed the Provisional IRA in the emergency relief work in the Catholic areas in terms of food relief, securing benefit payments via negotiation with the credit unions, the cash gyros and such. But the real truth was that the IRA had not run out of things to blow up. They had simply run out of things to blow them up with. After the series of recent sustained bombing blitzes in Belfast, they were chronically short of gelignite, nitrate and sodium chlorate, all indispensable ingredients in bomb making. The only deal brokered was, according to Fisk, with a Marxist socialist official IRA through the offices of the UDA who contacted them by telephone and struck a deal that the officials would guarantee the safety of the mainly Protestant delivery drivers in the markets area coming in and out of Ingalls Bakery. And the UWC, through the UDA, immediately agreed to, according to Fisk, ensure in return that other Catholic areas were supplied with bread, if necessary, by the UWC.